Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the eighth episode in our new series covering our pain and passion issue. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. On this episode, we'll be speaking with the Reverend Ben Crosby. Benjamin Crosby is a priest in the Episcopal Church, serving in the Anglican Church of Canada, and a doctoral student in ecclesiastical history at McGill University. He's written a piece for us titled, Where Are the Churches in Canada's Euthanasia Experiment? One of the tendencies of our age is to use the suffering of children to discredit the goodness of God, and once you've discredited his goodness, you're done with him. Busy cutting down human imperfection, those who seek to eliminate it are making headway also on the raw material of good. Ivan Karamazov cannot believe, as long as one child is in torment. Camus' hero cannot accept the divinity of Christ because of the massacre of the innocents. In this popular piety, we mark our gain in sensibility and our loss in vision. If other ages felt less, they saw more, even though they saw with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eyes of acceptance, which is to say of faith. In the absence of this faith now, we govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which, long cut off from the person of Christ, is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and the fumes of the gas chamber. That is a quote from Flannery O'Connor um, in her introduction to a memoir of Marianne, which is in her collected essays, Mystery and Manners. Um, Marianne was a girl with a cancerous tumor on her face. When she was 12, she died of it. By all accounts, before her death, she was, um, the quote is radiantly cheerful. Um, she was a girl who felt that her own life was very much worth living. This is uh, an expanded version of a quote that Ben Crosby included in his extremely good piece for us um, on uh, MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying, in Canada. Ben, what's going on in Canada? Yeah, um, well, thanks. Thanks so much, Susanna. Um, so I think the, the sort of short version um, is that starting um, following a, a court case um, called Carter versus Canada in 2015, beginning in 2016, um, Canada legalized um, euthanasia for the first time. And and sort of since then, I mean, we, we can sort of get into the, the details, but we've seen a um, an incredible expansion of eligibility for euthanasia resulting in um, one of the, if not the most permissive um, euthanasia regimes in the world. So your your piece, we'd actually had a um, a couple of kind of pieces that touched on this earlier, and we had a recent podcast on it uh, with Alexander Rakin and Leah Labresco. Your piece is different in that you are, in fact, a, an Episcopal priest, and you are writing primarily about the responses of the churches in Canada, and particularly the mainline churches. What what's been those uh, the those churches' responses in general? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, I mean, I think the <laughs> the the short version is uh, very disappointing. Um, before before euthanasia legalization, both the Canadian Council of Churches and the uh, the Anglican Church in Canada released uh, a statement in which they they opposed um, legalization um, for for grounds that have were never really, I mean, the, the, the sort of reasons that they were opposed to it um, at the time, you know, sort of concerns for, for the disabled, for, for sort of views of um, 
uh, of sort of the value of the lives of, of, of the elderly, the sick, the dying. And there's sort of concerns have never really been addressed. But but since the legalization um, of MAID here in Canada, the mainline churches have, uh, with astonishing speed, um, made peace with it, more or less, um, that they have sort of... Um, they have decided by and large to treat this as a private medical issue between a, uh, a doctor and a patient um, where the church is there to provide um, sort of non-judgmental affirmation and, and pastoral care um, in, in the face of whatever decision that, uh, that people make. Um, and then so concretely what this has looked like is the... Uh, the Lutherans, they've released actually probably the most sort of pro-euthanasia um, statement of, of any of the mainline churches. That's the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada. Um, there's another more, more conservative uh, Lutheran denomination as well, but I'm, I'm talking about the ELCIC here. Um, the United Church, Canada's largest Protestant denomination, um, although they have opposed um, some of the the recent um, steps to to further expand made eligibility they are are not opposed in principle clearly to um to to made in general and as i hope we'll talk about later have actually released some some quite horrifying um prayers um for for use um by um by people considering or, or choosing made um the, the anglican church of canada the church in which i work um has not really um sort of taken a a stand sort of a, a, at at the level of you know the, the bishops speaking together or a general synod um, speaking together, but they, they have put out um, a, a report, sort of a, a department within the church put out a, a report um, that more or less sort of takes a takes a similar stance that sort of says that you know we we can't really make judgments um, about um, the the activity of God in the lives of others people. Uh, it's the job of the church to. To listen, to be there, to be present, um, whatever it is people end up doing, um, even when what people are ending up doing is being killed by their doctors. But that's not what, I mean, this is, to be clear, not what they thought that their role was before the legalization passed. So this is tracking very closely with what the opinion of the state is about what their role is. That's exactly right. What's astonishing to me is setting aside, if one can, the moral issue of whether it's right for people to be killed, even on their own request, to be spared from pain. Uh, there's increasingly disturbing evidence that there is economic motives here. Uh, that This is not actually a fully autonomous decision in many cases. Uh, in the podcast episode we had with Alexander Rakin, who's done some excellent reporting on this, he, he described how, as a reporter, he called in to the maid hotline and set up an appointment for his own death and got a call back, you know, very quickly and an appointment very quickly without a lot of questions asked. Uh, he said it was it was bizarre because in his experience of the Canadian medical system or indeed of, of Can Canadian social systems in general, that type of rapid response was, you know, absolutely unbelievable. Uh, and you could imagine, and, and in fact, his, his reporting did bring out uh, cases of people with disabilities, for example, who, you know, would wait for months or years to get sort of basic accessibility 
stuff or help with financial issues, but uh, it only took, you know, a day or two to schedule their deaths. Yeah. And the, the, the potential, you know, again, setting aside what one feels about euthanasia, the potential for really, really bad incentives, even not to liberally built in is, is, is really, really something that you'd think the churches would be alert to. No, I think that's right. I mean, there is, there is a reason that the, um, the disability community um, has been one of the um, sort of disability rights groups and disability justice organizations have been, been some of the loudest in, um, in standing against um, made in general and and in particular um, made expansion to those whose death is not, not reasonably foreseeable, um, which was sort of one of the most recent kind of rounds of expansion um, that we've had here for, for precisely these reasons that, I mean, we have, we have reporting um, of as, as, Alex um, has, has, as you say, done some really amazing work on, um, but, but you know, he's not the only one um, of, of people who are indeed considering and in some cases choosing euthanasia, not because they really want it, um, but because the sort of basic social supports that they would need to live a, yeah, to, to live their lives are just not available. And there, in fact, have been reports by economists um, and policy people gaming out, um, employed by the Canadian Health Service, gaming out things like what the the cost savings would be if instead of caring for someone with with fibromyalgia or um, diabetes or whatever, you just killed them. And, you know, the cost savings are significant. And so these, you know, there are plenty of documents out there showing the health system looking at this in terms of cost savings. It's not completely innocent. No, I mean, I, I think that, you know, to, to sort of be as, as generous as we can, I mean, I, I will say that I, I think, and I, I sort of so see no reason not to take them at their, their word here that this, that monetary concerns aren't what's what's motivating the people pushing for for made expansion but it is certainly true that as the government itself has acknowledged that yes there there are cost incentives um for people being killed by their government rather than being um cared for i think that to take a, a attack of being like this is actually all about cost savings and this is a, a you know conspiracy to kill canadians so that the government will save money i think you know, it's actually more sinister than that in the sense that it's something that people <laughs> can genuinely start believing um, on the basis of their own understanding, in some cases of their Christian faith, is good. Right. Um, because their sense of what to be good to someone else is, is to affirm their choices and to be as kind of kind in a very specific sense as possible to them. And we'll get into that later when we go into some of the responses we've gotten to your article, uh, Ben, uh, where we'll have a great opportunity to hear from some of the people who think exactly that. Yeah. But I'm interested just um, just because you've been incredibly vocal about this in a quite a brave way, I think, on Twitter, uh, especially given your particular sort of cultural and, you know, work context. You are a mainline Protestant priest um, <laughs> in, <Right. laughs> in North America. Um, in Canada, and you are um, vocally taking a side in something which 
it's a weird one because it's not a traditional culture war issue because I've seen so many, this is not a sort of standard culture war split. Have you felt that, you know, taking a stand on this, a public um, stand in some cases is uh, what's been the pushback? If you felt that you're doing something that's going to risk your future career prospects, have people, you know, yelled at you about this or said big yikes chief? <laughs> or anything like that? <laughs> like, yeah, what are the responses no, to? it's, I mean, that's certainly, it's certainly a good question. I mean, it's, it's something that I've thought about both as a, um, yeah, I mean, in, in particular as a, as a priest, also as a, a graduate student applying for, for funding, um, you know, for the government, for, uh, for various things, but in particular as a, as a priest, um, serving in the Anglican Church of Canada, I mean, we'll see. I mean, it, it felt like something that was important to, um, to talk about publicly regardless like it, it just it seemed like it was the right thing to do i mean I'll, I'll say for what it's worth um that i have been very pleased by um the sort of responses i have gotten um mostly um sometimes publicly via social media more more often must be said sort of on the on the back channel as it were um from uh, priests or other mainline ministers in in Canada um sort of expressing thanks um for for my writing this so i mean i i think um certainly certainly i am not the only one who is horrified by both made as it exists in Canada right now and and the church's silence um which has been heartening frankly Again, some housekeeping before we continue with the rest of our conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll be back with the rest of our conversation with Ben after the break. It seems to me that this is kind of um, an unusual, I guess, an unusual issue because, because it hasn't really, maybe it just hasn't firmed up yet. But it hasn't seemed to me to be a very straightforward left versus right culture war issue. In general, it has, you know, it is a kind of like right coded position. But I've also just noticed for a lot of people who, you know, in general would regard themselves as progressive liberal on many social issues in, in the sense that they value autonomy and personal choice as one of the highest goods. But, you know, made seems to be a bridge too far. And, and it does seem to be like, um, giving them a moment of pause, like maybe autonomy and personal choice are not the highest goods. And we should, um, and, you know, obviously, in my opinion, I think that a sort of a, a fuller account of leftism would be more um, sort of have, have a larger vision for what it means for us to be social creatures such that, you know, me making a personal choice to get MAID when my whole society is telling me that I'm useless and should probably die because I'm a drain on society is not necessarily like a free and unconstrained choice in the way that one would really want it to be. Um, that's right. That was incoherent. But what do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think one of the things that's been been striking that I, I think I tried to gesture to in my piece is is the way in which um, those working to to resist made made expansion that it has been a an unusual coalition that you have some sort of very very lefty um right sort of disability rights organizations um finding common cause with, with the catholic church with with conservative evangelicals with um 
with other groups who you wouldn't necessarily expect, and in fact, I'm sure they're not um, entirely aligned on on a set of of other issues. Um, so yeah, no, I, th I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, it feels to me like I think what you said is exactly right. Right, that the the kind of ideology um, underlying made is sort of is 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 like liberal in the in the technical sense right like in yeah. that it's it's yeah. it's um in a way that that makes both sort of some amount of people on the on the left um and then sort of some conservatives not all conservatives right but but um in particular in canada christian conservatives um you know sort of very very nervous but this this particular view of right as, as the presbyterian church in in canada which is the only mainline denomination that has sort of held the line on um on, on euthanasia and opposing it right i mean they they sort of describe it as a a question of of different different basic approaches to life and in arguing i think rightly that the canadian culture that what we roughly will call western culture more broadly is is enamored with the you know the poem Invictus, that I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. That 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 is kind. That is, that is the view that is behind, or one of the views that is behind behind made advocacy, behind those who are, are in support of that and against this. Um, you know, comes an, an account of us as as you say it more more fully social creatures, necessarily dependent on each other, necessarily affected by each other so that as you say um even if autonomy is a is a deeply high you know sort of important commitment for for one in general you know it becomes sort of easy to see that a situation where there where there isn't support for for disability where there i mean that where um the lives of of the the ill and disabled are sort of conceptualized very explicitly in this in this discourse as like lacking in dignity as as in some sense sort of not fully human that the choice to commit um euthanasia is is not in fact a free one and in fact some of the liturgies the prayers that have been prepared for those who are preparing to go through uh euthanasia do quite explicitly um you know, say that lives which, you know, where that are characterized by increased dependence are increasingly lacking in dignity, which is a right. striking thing for a Christian liturgy to claim. Um, do Indeed. you want to read some of those or do you want uh, to? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I do so with, with some trepidation uh, because I think these these prayers are frankly horrifying. But yes, these are on the United Church of Canada website, you know, sort of put together by, I mean, this in itself is striking, a, a minister of the United Church working with a, a um, former co-president of Dying with Dignity Canada, which is the, the biggest kind of pro-euthanasia um, organization in Canada. Um, and so let's see, here's, here's an excerpt from one of them, which is a prayer in the midst of fear. Um, I hope that they, i.e. My, my family and loved ones, will be proud of my decision and will understand that MAID is consistent with the love and compassion of Jesus. I have such peace in knowing this is my choice. My family loves me, but they cannot feel my suffering. They cannot comprehend my helplessness. Um, 
I'm terrified of dying in pain and being helpless, but the choice to determine when I've had enough gives me peace, even in the midst of the fear. I feel that fear throws up a barrier between you and me, loving God, a barrier so hard to penetrate, and I want that barrier down. Um, so, so right, so here, you know, the, the sort of fear of, of, of death and suffering, right, so euthanasia here is actually like a, a technique to sort of improve your your relationship with God, um, apparently, um, to, to sort of overcome this barrier um, between you and God. And then the other one, which which might be um, even, even worse, this is a prayer at the time of deciding on the day and place of death. Um, and it includes this. I do not want to linger in pain, waiting for death to come. I do not want my family and loved ones to watch me suffer to the bitter end. I do not want them to be haunted by memories of a slow, painful death. Daily, my dignity is being eroded. I am ready to go through that final door. I mean, there it is, right? Yeah. Hey, um, I, I, I kind of don't know where to begin. Like, so as a, <laughs> as a priest, as someone who, you know, is a believing Christian and kind of knows, you know, prays the Psalms, for example, um, and knows kind of Christian anthropology and, and ethics, what's wrong with this approach to life and oneself and death? Like what, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think from a Christian perspective, um, a, a whole lot, one, one almost doesn't know where to begin. I mean, I think first of all, um, right, the kind of sense of, of belonging to self versus versus belonging to God strikes me as, as important here, right? There's, there's sort of, not really this this sense of of life as 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 gift given to you from outside that you don't sort of entirely get to to choose to yourself what to do with but are in fact sort of responsible um to to live a life of of gratitude in response to the to the gift giver to god um and then you have this view um sort of very explicitly stated that suffering pain dependence is is incompatible with with dignity and um i mean this is like in the in the literal sense like this is this is paganism right like this is like pre the nietzschean transvaluation of values like like if we are really christians if our sort of model of the human life fully lived ends in like suffering and agony on the cross like we, we just can't say this like we, yeah. we just we just can't <laughs> say this right like i think and and i think um you know and i you mentioned um we were talking a little before the podcast you mentioned um tom holland i mean i think this is something that that dominion that his dominion um sort of shows so powerfully although i mean he's not the only one to to make this argument the way in which um sort of christianity transformed the the anthropology of um yeah what we might roughly call the west um you know certainly a sort of roman empire um you know from a world in which um you know i don't know leaving leaving babies to be exposed was just sort of something you did if they weren't if they weren't useful that that, that absolutely dignity was bound up in in being excellent being rich being male being sort of all these set of things and and just how revolutionary um the the christian commitment um to the basic dignity of of all people and perhaps especially the poor the sick the overlooked the suffering was and and here we are you know sort of very merrily um saying, I mean, literally inviting people to pray to God that 
because of my experience of suffering and dependence, uh, my dignity is being eroded. I mean, I, I it's it's anti-Christian. Yeah, it strikes me that that in a very essential way, those prayers. I don't know if you'd use this term, but I will. Uh, you know, are a form of apostasy from the real heart of of the gospel. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. Yeah, and that said this is core to what the churches should be teaching. And you mentioned in your article this hesitation that the church should almost teach anything. Uh, That's right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like an even more basic issue than <laughs> even, you know, euthanasia. That's right. I mean, I think, and there are, there are right, so there are two sort of perhaps separate questions we might ask about the church's response. I mean, the one is, that are connected to each other, but at least to some extent sort of conceptually distinct, you know, the one is, is what responsibility or, or ability does the church have to sort of speak to, to the public sphere outside it? Um, and what ability does, and, and responsibility does the church have to speak to its, to its own people? And the, the thing that has been both striking and I think horrifying um, to me about a lot of the mainline church's response to MAID is that it is not only um, given up on the first, but but as you say, in a lot of cases, it is, it is given up on the, the second as well. And I think this was perhaps made most clear in the, um, in the Anglican Church of Canada's, in their report, um, Insure and Certain Hope, uh, where they, um, which again, I, I, I do repeat, because I, I think this is worth being clear about, was, I mean, sort of put out by the church, but was not sort of officially endorsed in its contents um, by the church's sort of highest kind of legislative body. So that, that being said, um, it says that the church um, has become increasingly skeptical of our capacity to understand and interpret the work of God in the life of the other person. The, the role of the church really is to, is to listen in the encounter between God and the patient um, and, and to help the dying people, you know, experience meaning, purpose, and control, and be present, right? Like that. That it's it's. Um, and what this is, um, I think, because the the kind of CPEification of of Christian pastoral care, uh, CPE being this um, sort of typically summer internship that most mainline clergy do, where you sort of work as a um, sort of semi-trained hospital chaplain for a, for a summer, basically. And I, I there, there's a rabbit hole there that we maybe don't want to go down, but I think you know. So much of of the emphasis in the like actual training that ministers get about pastoral care that that tends to be keyed to this this experience of hospital chaplaincy internship is you know you're there to to be present, to affirm, um, to listen. It's a um, a reduction, I think, of of sort of the relationship between clergy and their people, the task of Christian care to a, a set of techniques that, that, that are useful and in some cases there's nothing wrong with them in say, but, but techniques that are sort of particularly designed to be used in kind of multi-confessional um, hospital settings where, where hospital chaplains, you know, aren't necessarily supposed to be giving um, sort of concretely Christian um, care to, to the people they're, they're looking at. Um, and this is, for some reason, what um, Christian denominations have decided is going to be their model of, of pastoral care. And, and I think here, here we see the, the outcome of that, where this, you know, where it's, it's somehow, um, quote unquote, unpastoral um, for, uh, 
you know, for churches to to say anything. I mean, I want, some of the pushback that I, I have gotten from from mainline clergy is is this sort of, well, Ben, you know, this, this is all well and good, but you know, are you saying? That we should abandon um, our people that that choose made, and of course, nowhere do I do I say that. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's a complicated question of what what pastoral care ought to look like um, for people who do make this choice, which which I mean is a legal choice in Canada um, and and will be for the foreseeable future. Um, but you know, the notion that it's it's impossible. For, that, that, that there's a, um, a disconnect or a contradiction between the church sort of taking stances on things and caring for its people, um, even when those people disagree, is baffling. I mean, it, it, it just it, it makes no sense um, if you look at the history of Christian pastoral care, but it, it seems to be where we're at. Yeah. Have you seen models of what a more faithful Christian version of pastoral care would look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I mean, I know the um, there was an interesting um, piece on this a little a little while ago um, in uh, Faith Today, which is a Canadian evangelical uh, magazine, sort of with with people kind of in particular some sort of evangelical hospital chaplains um, kind of wrestling with um, wrestling with exactly this question. Um, I don't know if I saw like any any sort of clear solution to the problem. Um, but I mean, it, it strikes me that on, on some level, it's the sort of thing that um, that Christians do all the time, right? That the Christian minister that Christian ministers do all the time. I mean, if you think about um, this is maybe obvious, but if you think about something like um, like Christian prison ministry, right, where you are are sort of ministering um, to people who, uh, you know, assuming that they are are sort of there justly, you know, have indeed done sort of bad things that the church um, thinks are bad, and still sort of figuring out how to kind of share the the love of Christ. I mean, at, at some level, in, I mean, at some level, this is what pastoral care to, to any one of us looks like, because any one of us. Um, sins sort of fails to, to live in accordance perfectly with 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 what the gospel calls us to um and it's the job of ministers to be both loving and and exhortative so i mean i, I kind of at some level i just i think that the, the the sort of end of life stakes like make it particularly difficult like it, it's not like i i don't think it's hard but the notion that like that this is sort of something wholly new that that we've never encountered before in in Christian pastoral care um just just doesn't strike me as true. I mean, for one thing, it it has been in the past kind of a common understanding of what the job of a Christian is and the job of a, a Christian pastor is to prepare for death well and then to help someone die well because that's you right. know if, if Christianity is true. You know, if it's not true, then forget it. We're talking about something else. Like, um, you know, we would need to take that into account. But if it is true, then dying is one of the most important things that you can do. And you really want to make an effort to do that well. Um, and, you know, it's not something to be gotten through as tidily as possible. It's something to be gotten through as faithfully as possible. And That's right. I, I, yeah. And and I think that it seems to me that... Um, the CPEfication, I love that phrase. And yes, you should all subscribe <laughs> to Ben's Substack. It's outstanding. Um, of ways of thinking about what human life is and what we're allowed to say about that is just not at some point compatible with being a Christian pastor. Like you can be very, you can be, you know, 
as tentative as um, you can be very, very gentle and kind of thoughtful and not ham fisted and not obnoxious when talking with someone, you know, who's Christian or who's not Christian about, um, you know, what you might be there to talk to them about. But at some point, you it does have to, your role as a Christian pastor does have to take into account the reality of the gospel. Um, because otherwise, what are you there for? Like, no, that's right. And, and, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is just not, this is not for me a like set of roughly equivalent therapeutic techniques among others to like make one cope with the sort of actual meaninglessness of existence or whatever, right? Like, I, I actually think this is true. Um, and if it is true, it, it matters. I mean, I think what you said is, is very important. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you look through, so I'm a, I'm a church historian um, when I'm, you know, it's sort of the, the other part of my life. Um, and I've, I've sort of done some work on focus on the 16th century. But you see, I mean, really throughout church history, I mean, the like dying manuals are this incredibly common thing. I mean, uh, perhaps one of the most important examples, at least for, for Anglicans like me, is um, Jeremy Taylor's Holy Dying, where it's this, I mean, hundreds of pages of, you know, perhaps in some cases sort of overly, overly prescriptive or, or a little bit, um, you know, well, whatever. I mean, not, not to endorse every one of each prayer in, in, uh, that he gives in, in its entirety, but it is this, there is this clear sense, as you say, that, that dying Christianly is something that that matters is something that people need to be guided through is something that people need to learn how to do and i, I think that this is something that we are very bad at at talking to um at talking to people about frankly um yeah i wonder if partly too and this is entirely speculative but there was up until probably the early 20th century um the simple fact that most people still died at home and that these pra these practices were something that you would see that that's you right. would take part of and then when it became became to be your turn you'd kind of know what to do um to some degree and and as dying has been increasingly something that happens you know while you're coding in a hospital unit somewhere um we've kind of lost sight maybe of what a so-called good death looks like even if it involves pain yeah i suspect that's very much true it does kind of seem as though there's a, a moment of trying to reinvent death as a kind of expressive individualism in the way <laughs> that you know marriage was reinvented as a kind of expressive individualism in i don't know the 60s and 70s like let's nobody knows how to do death no one's ever done this before we have to figure it out for ourselves and what it means for us like it's just it's a very it's a very distinct kind of um boomer flavor um <laughs> i think we should um, turn to some of our reader responses Susanna, because yeah. every once in a while and this article was one of them uh we publish an article that just elicits a real Floods. stream uh, yeah. reader responses. We kind of posted some of the best ones on the website with the article. Uh, we didn't pu publish all of them, but I think it'd be interesting to look at some of the more thoughtful ones here. Uh, Susanna, do you have one? And then it would be great to hear you, Ben, you know, any thoughts or responses you have? Perfect. Um, so this is from a doctor in Australia where apparently euthanasia was legalized eight weeks ago. Um, so timely. 
Um, he says, nurses have told me, so he's Catholic. He says, nurses have told me that they support euthanasia because they don't want to watch people die. This reinforces a lecture we had in medical school 30 years ago when a psychiatrist told us that the that underlying the arguments for euthanasia is the feeling not that the patient can't deal with their pain, but that we as loved ones can't deal with their pain. The evidence also suggests that in choosing euthanasia because they perceive themselves to be a burden to others, the patient is suggesting that they can't deal, those others can't deal with our suffering. Um, and I just thought this was fascinating and played into a lot of um, sort of other thoughts and questions that I have. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think this this certainly makes um, makes an intuitive amount of sense to me. And it's, it's striking, actually, you know, if you think about um, one of the prayers that I read where, you know, one of the things that the sort of person is invited to to express to God um, in in the prayer is is this sort of particular fear of of the suffering of of family members in in sort of watching one one suffer and and I mean I think it's it's probably worth saying I mean I don't think that there is sort of anything like wrong or or unfaithful in you know not wanting to watch a loved one you know suffer and to die or or sort of not oneself as the person who is suffering and die sort of want to watch you know your your sort of loved ones suffering as as you go like it's it's not that that's sort of wrong per se but I I do think that as we can see here you know that sort of becomes it, that gets dangerous when this sort of natural and and I think even in in many ways sort of faithful you know sort of set of emotions or, or experiences sort of becomes divorced from any underlying account of what it means to be human um, and then just sort of becomes a reason to like well okay you know you, you don't want this sort of suffering to happen or anyone to observe your suffering you know why don't you just die then um, and I mean yeah. and the burden language is is striking I mean it's not so the Canadian um, government you know sort of keeps um, pretty careful records um, which make for deeply depressed distressing although also you know interesting if you're trying to sort of understand this reasoning um reporting on on made on why people choose made on, on who the people are who choose made um and it's not i mean it's not sort of one of the top ones but the the fear of being a burden to others um you know is one of the reasons that people often give um for for choosing euthanasia um, as sort of one of the things that's motivating their choice. And I, I mean, I think it's not clear whether that means a financial burden, an emotional burden, you know, what, what exactly sort of burden that is. But I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I think it both makes sense, but I mean, is the sort of perversion of a like good impulse to want to, to, to just sort of sacrifice oneself for others, to even imitate Christ in pouring oneself for others, but but that then becomes twisted into this, oh, okay, I, I feel like a burden to others, so I should just go, I Check should out. just die. Yeah. 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 And, you know, for what it's worth, I don't think that this is the final answer um, or the, the most important thing, but I do think that it has been shown, and, you know, I think many of us can sort of com on, on a common sense basis understand that, for someone who you love to choose to die, to choose suicide, is an incredibly horrible and painful thing. And, you know, that that is true. You know, you might not experience it as traumatically as if you found them, you know, with their wrist slit in a bathtub, but there's still something viscerally, I think, awful about, you know, and horrific really about knowing that a family member has killed themselves or has has chosen suicide and i think that um 
you know, we have a lot of language and, and the more this is becoming popularized, the more this language is kind of being deployed to kind of put fluff around it and to cushion it and to make it seem that's like right. that's not what this is. You should not respond right. emotionally as though this is suicide. You shouldn't right. grieve this as suicide. This is something nice and good. And, and in fact, you know, this is better than a natural death. This is more, this will that's be right. less traumatic than a natural death. And I just don't think that that's true. I mean, obviously people respond differently, but it certainly would not be true for me. And I think that a lot of people are putting a lot of emotional energy into pretending that it's something other than what it is. But believe it or not, the uh, the Supreme Court case, Carter versus Canada, that, that legalized it sort of justified this um, in part as a sort of, right, as, as um, you needed to have this, you couldn't ban euthanasia um, because this went against the charter guarantee to to life. Um, that, that sort of euthanasia was a sort of prevention mechanism, actually. That you know that that sort of that that people you know who had these terrible illnesses would you know have to sort of kill themselves earlier um, and in potentially more more sort of painful and traumatic ways. And so we have to let them have made as an option so that they can, you know, live longer and die in this um, quote unquote non-suicidal way. It seems to me that um, one of the things that is most unrealistic about the way that this is talked about is that things like depression, suicidality, desire to die from MAID, presence of people, people in your life who don't want you to die from MAID, um, not being isolated and general social attitudes towards suicide, dependence, old age, and disability. Like, it's like we can pretend that all of those are totally separable. And so somebody has this desire to die from made, which is pure and which is not related to, say, the fact that in their country, it's now legal for people to die from made who are in their situation. And someone is saying, have you considered suicide? This might be a good choice, like life choice for you. Like, as though we, it just seems to me like, do you, do you not know what it's like to be human from the inside? Like, we... <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I have a, a, a friend who's actually um, written about this some, and I, I think has a, a piece coming out in, um, in comment about this before too long, about sort of being um, you know, diagnosed with, with sort of late stage, very serious cancer, um, and having just, just sort of matter-of-factly presented to him among the set of treatment options made and like yes how can that not um influence your your sort of decision matrix you know and that kind of plays into our next our next reader comment uh the the reader writes in part canadian society does not have the patience and chooses not to provide resources to the individual facing declining health and as importantly does not provide support to the family and caregivers of the individual I'm sharing these comments as I struggle to come to a position on MAID. I believe life is sacred, but I also respect the right of self-determination. Who am I to decide another's fate? And that kind of gets to the heart of it. Um, yeah. What would yeah? What would you say in response? No, to I that? think that's right. Um, and I think that there is a, a sort of perhaps a different, although related, set of answers um, that are sort of kind of within the Christian community and, and to those and, and sort of to the church speaking to those without the society at large. But I mean, at, I mean, at some level, 
I think we we all decide each other's fates all the time. I mean, that's just sort of part of of being human. This um, this this dream of, and this isn't to say that um, there isn't a sort of important place for a more kind of I don't know, sort of chastened and realistic and an honest account of the value of. Um, the sort of ability to, to make free choices about or to make choices about one's life. Um, you know, there's not to say that that's there's not a place for that in an account of of the good life. But um, but to choose to expand made um, and to choose not to have, you know, sufficient disability benefits is a choice about about people's fate. Right. Like it, it, it just is, you know, there's there's no escaping it. Um, and I think that responsible, you know, even, even, um, you know, sort of non-confessional, um, secular public policy, I think if it's going to be honest, it has to, it has to reckon with that fact. Um, and obviously from a, from a Christian perspective, um, you know, the, the answer to whether or not we, we are our brother's keepers is, um, settled pretty emphatically um pretty early yeah. on in the book actually you don't need yeah. to get very far in the bible before before that becomes <laughs> before that becomes clear um and maybe, maybe i'm you know treating it sort of more more lightly than it deserves but i mean i i do think that if you know speaking as a christian um and as a christian pastor responsible for giving pastoral care to other christians if if christianity is true um my sort of respect for my people's um, sort of ability to decide their own family. I mean, that's, that's just, that's not very high on the list of, uh, <laughs> of my responsibilities as a, as a Christian pastor. <laughs> I love that makes me so happy. Suzanne, I want you to read, I want you to read the Australian, we think oh, it's an Australian one? response because then we're, we're going to have to wrap up, unfortunately. I don't know if it's from an Australian or not, but the first time I read it, it got into my head in an Australian accent. And so like every time I've sort of come back to it, it's been like the sky's Australian. So here's here's the one of the comments. Jeepers, Benjamin, lighten up, mate. I can't find reference to made in my Bible, nor in anything that's written that Jesus said. You've incited your readers to get all judgmental and righteous about an issue that is more complex at a personal level than you dare to explore. One commented wants us to remember Nazi Germany. Really, Benjamin? Does the world need more anger, man? <laughs> so, <laughs> so apologies if you're not Australian and you wrote that. I'm sorry that in my head you're Australian, but it, that's just how it is sometimes. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, you know, there is this kind of like, obviously, We'll respond however you would like to. We also don't necessarily have to. It's just that, that's the Australian yeah. guy, and he seems to be part of the conversation. Um, Goodness, um, yes. I mean, I, I mean, a couple of things, right? I mean, I think you know, it's it's sort of, and then maybe this sort of speaks to the the last comment too. I mean, I think yes, like it is, it is deeply personal, and yes, like it is hard. Um, but I, I actually think that there are some choices that it is is good for someone not to have, right? Like I, I sort of I struggle with um, with mental health issues, with with anxiety and depression, um, and so you know, although I, I don't think I would have ever been at a case where I would have sort of 
been severe enough to, to qualify for, for MAID under the expansion that the government is, is currently trying to, to work out that, that sort of mental health diagnoses alone um, would be, um, you know, sort of potentially qualify one for, for dying via MAID. But like, I know that in my worst moments, like it would have been very bad for me to be, um, to be in a society where, um, oh, maybe actually you should die was, was sort of a response to a certain set of mental health issues. And I mean, everything we know about, about suicide prevention, you know, sort of backs this up, right? This, this isn't just, you know, Ben Crosby's vibe on this, but like it, it, um, yeah, like it would have been bad for me and it I will be bad for many Canadians um to to live in a society where this um this is an option personal though the choice to do this obviously is and I mean to the other thing I mean I, I don't even I, I I'm trying to give it the most sort of charitable construction I I have but I mean the the sort of I mean, I don't know, like they're, they're sort of, and perhaps I'm assuming more about, about this person's sort of political orientation than I ought to, but, you know, there are, are many, I mean, the Bible doesn't talk very explicitly about, about labor unions or sort of combating racism either, and that doesn't mean that a, a sort of Christian ethic might not have things to say to that, like it's... I, yeah, I, I I don't really know what else to say. Like, I am a good, you know, sort of sola scriptura Protestant um, in my in my uh, you know in my heart, but that doesn't mean that we do sort of Christian ethics via proof text. That's just that's just not how this works. Yes. Well, and let's get back to that quote from Flannery O'Connor that we began this episode with, because she does point uh, in that quote that you included in your piece and in this longer selection with the way in which scripture actually does have something to say about this question. Uh, she points to the tenderness which long cut off from the person of Christ is wrapped in theory. I just really love that line. And I think that might be uh, the place to end our discussion on um, is by looking to the person of Christ. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I come back to... Um the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, you know, one of my, my sort of, it's question one in particular, it's just one of the most um, beautiful expositions, I think, of the sort of Christian faith and hope that we have. And it, it asks, you know, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Um, and that comfort is not actually um, the ability to um, have choices to the end, even unto death. Um, our only comfort is in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has truly paid for our sins by his death on the cross assures us then that we through his death are given the power of the holy spirit to live not for ourselves but for him and i mean i think if the season of lent is about anything it is about both sort of preparing to celebrate the way the shocking way that god acted in christ to set us free from the powers of sin and death and to then in grateful obedience to God who saved us to take up our crosses, whatever they may be, and follow him even to a good death. Thanks, Ben. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for writing this piece. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com membership to learn more.